Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. You know, if you think about um, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, these entrepreneurs were dissidents. That is, they stood up to a system uh, that existed and, and basically told them, no, they're wrong, and that they didn't care what the state or the system said. They were going to do something very different. And, and that's the part where China's on the wrong side of history. From South China Morning Post, this is Inside China Tech. Insights into what matters. <laughs> work for us because we are 996. Are you okay? I started Alibaba 1999 in my apartment. Speed and data, and that's where China comes in. Here are your hosts, Zen Su and Chua Kong Ho. Hi everyone, welcome back to the first episode of the relaunched Inside China Tech. I am Zen Su, a technology reporter at the South China Morning Post. And I'm Kong Ho, the technology editor. As some of you might have heard from the trailer, this is a tale of two countries in innovation, China and the U.S. So the common stereotype that we have of U.S. innovation or, you know, in Silicon Valley as the tech powerhouse of the world is that innovation is often bottom-up and driven by free market forces, whereas in China, it is state-led and therefore top-down. So today on the show, we asked ourselves, is there a formula for success? Can China ever hope to compete we were quite surprised to see that the U.S. model and how China had its beginnings in technology are actually much more similar than we think. So, where do we start? Of course, war. The history of Silicon Valley was actually as a, a defense ecosystem in the middle of what we in the United States call the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. This is Steve Blank. I'm an adjunct professor at Stanford University and a senior fellow at Columbia University in New York. So in the 1950s, the US and the Soviet Union, then two large superpowers, were in an intense rivalry in every dimension. Politics, economy, propaganda, and essentially, military power. All US universities, uh, research universities, were helping build weapon systems for our military. And Stanford University's expertise was in microwaves and electronics. Now... There was a professor at Stanford who was critical to Silicon Valley's formation. His name was Frederick Emmons Terman. He was teaching electronics at the time. Uh, when I started teaching, I was teaching a variety of things, but uh, no one was offering a course in uh, what today we call electronics, but which then we called radio engineering. And so I thought uh, one ought to be started. Fred Terman did something unique that no other professor in any other of those research universities ever did. And that is he pointed his students and professors outward and said, take your inventions and go start companies. Because that will actually help the country more than a few professors. And so Stanford University participated in military research, but became kind of an entrepreneurial cluster or center for innovation in the United States. 
Terman invited another very critical figure to our story, William Shockley, a Nobel Prize winner and a co-inventor of the transistor. Well, the war intervened, and during that time I went out of physics and uh, worked on uh, problems of military operations, which, what is now called operations research. He came to Palo Alto and started the first semiconductor company in California called Shockley Semiconductor. And uh, about 15 months later, eight of his best and the brightest people um, left because it turns out Shockley was the world's best recruiter and technologist and probably one of the worst bosses that ever existed in Silicon Valley. And so his eight best engineers uh, left to start a company called Fairchild Semiconductor. And in fact, you can trace the history of all chip businesses back to these first two companies, Shockley and Fairchild. While we couldn't beat the Soviet Union with tanks and artillery and, and planes that they were building up in Central Europe, we can actually beat them with semiconductor factories and software. And people who started Fairchild and worked at Fairchild actually went on to create other tech businesses such as Intel, AMD, you know, and even Kleiner Perkins, the very famous venture capital firm that we know today. So what you're telling me is that the U.S. is great at semiconductors today and that basically boils down to one bad boss. Yeah, I guess you can say that. But these are universities and private companies that you're talking about. Sure, they were operating in a Cold War context, but you know what's the government's role in all of this? So it turns out that the military in the 1950s and 60s was the largest customer for all of these electronic companies in the Valley. After the Soviet Union launched its first space satellite Sputnik in 1957... Sputnik and Mutnik, they were called. Man's greatest technical achievement, only a crude prototype of the true spaceship of the future. The US was afraid that they were lagging behind technologically. And the US government, under President Eisenhower, turned to fund Fairchild, the only company in the world that was able to make transistors at the time. So the first batch of semiconductors was actually sold to the military to make bombers or to be components in the B-70 bomber. This is Andy Mock, a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Silicon Valley, really actually the roots of it were very directly tied to the government, and we see this uh, with China as well. If we roll it back just a little bit, about 50 years ago in China's modern history, all industries were nationalized and the, there was basically no private sector. Everything in China was owned by the state. Well, if you think about it, let's just kind of roll in all the pieces that China did is that, you know, in the 80s, there were R&D institutes and universities and then Chinese banks started playing and, you know, the local technology zones. And, you know, in the mid 90s, Chinese venture capital funds uh, and then in like 2001, foreign VC firms were let in. In 2004, there was an IPO market in China and then government venture funds and then eventually Chinese angel funds. And, you know, there was the key technology R&D program. In 1986, there was the 863 program, 98, the 973 program, and then 98. The Wait, hey, um, what are those numbers? The thing about the Chinese is that they like to use numbers as shorthand, you know, like to make the program titles shorter. So the 863 program is actually China's state high-tech development plan. And the reason it's called 863 is because it was implemented in 1986 and in March. So 86 and 3. 
So yeah, at that point of time, many of China's different programs were characterized by numbers, basically. But all these are now kind of background to Chinese commercial ventures. But remember, the goal for the government was all this commercial stuff is an accident. So it does look like China has a kind of a similar start to Silicon Valley. Yeah, so they both had their beginnings in government money. So, you know, like in the Cold War, the government then wanted to enlist the efforts of the universities. And as we've just heard, China also did it the same way. But there must be some differences, right? Hello? Hello, hi, is this Professor Zhou? Hello. Yeah, this is her. Hi, okay. hello, hi, this is Zen from the South So I spoke Post. to Professor Yu Zhou. I'm a professor at Vassar College. I specialize in economic geography. I have been doing research on China high-tech industry. She also told us that it's simply not true that the United States had all of this innovation because it was driven by the free market. We had the Manhattan Project, we had Star Wars, we had the Internet Highways. All these are state investments, all of which helped the Silicon Valley to develop their new technology. But it is also inaccurate and misleading to characterize China's innovation as entirely top-down. I would say, yes, China has a top-down system. But our research has shown China actually has a dual-track system. So it has a very strong state-led innovation, but it also has very powerful market-driven innovation. So what are some examples of you know, China showing kind of like bottom-up sort of market-driven kind of innovation? Um, the entire internet industry, for example, Many of the internet apps and address many of the um, daily life, um, these are not planned by the Chinese government. The cell phone industry, um, Chinese government actually in the early 2000s were still trying to license only limited cell phone company to a few company they find reliable, but many companies emerged that uh, what we call the Shanghai, you know, knockoff and so on in the early 2000s, and some of them became eventually consolidated in the 3G era, became the major company like Xiaomi and so on. Um, Xiaomi is not a state company, for example, and many of the internet companies, almost none of them are. So uh, none of this was planned by the Chinese government or even anticipated by the Chinese government. So we have to say China's innovation is both top-down and bottom-up. So is it necessarily a bad thing or a good thing? Just like with everything else, China's model has its pros and cons. China has been a lot more hands-on, sometimes for good, most times not particularly that great, you know, to say, okay, we should have this and that. But it is also easier for China because it's, uh, it, it doesn't stand on the frontier of technology so it can see in the world what works what doesn't say you know renewable energy we should push for it because it is important we can see it is important united states somewhat on the frontier there's no one out there to prove to us what work what doesn't so it is harder for the united states to say that's what we're going to do 
So China lagging behind actually gave it certain advantages. And right now, you know, China is still catching up in many sectors. It's not on a par with the US yet, but the speed is very impressive. And that very speed is raising concerns in the US, where many are worried that we are seeing the beginnings of a tech cold war. Fox, a new report this morning saying that China used tiny chips in a hack that infiltrated US businesses, including... Amazon and Apple. The administration is considering a crackdown on Chinese investments in U.S. technologies by using a law reserved for national emergencies. I can take care of China in my back pocket. And God bless America. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I think, first of all, I hope they are not locked in to a technology war. Maybe they are, um, but hopefully um, certain solution can emerge. In this type of information technology industry, the world is mostly integrated. So United States designed semiconductor chips. Taiwan firms manufacture into foundries. In between, many, many designers are designing different chips. And then these chips would then be used in cell phones and things like that. So each of the services is built on top of each other. The United States provides the basic infrastructure for these software and hardware. Well, you can say, well, why can China do it? Yes, China can if it put in energy. But before it actually, there's no commercial reason to do so because United States chips are better and cheaper right is that mean there is no alternative of course there are alternative but there is no reason to use this alternatives okay so basically right now if they don't come to a kind of resolution everyone will suffer and China will well, just simply everyone <laughs> would have to find their own way right yeah everyone would have to make a decision all of these decisions will cost money but the point is once you develop a different platform it is extremely difficult to go back so once you stop selling trips to china you can't in the future sell trips to china Okay, so what we found out so far is that the U.S. is not purely bottom-up when it comes to technology innovation. So they had a lot of help from the U.S. government in terms of federal and military funding. We also realized that for China, it is not purely state-led and top-down. Finally, and this is news to nobody, but if there was an actual tech cold war, it's going to hurt everyone. You know, not just the U.S. and China, but the rest of the world as well. Sure, everyone loses and China looks as if it's going to hurt quite badly. But it does have a card in his pocket. So one of the huge advantages China has, which I'm not sure most Americans understand, is that it's a domestic market. That's Steve Blank again. China probably equals the entire world. Um, You know, the U.S. thinks it has a large domestic market of a couple hundred people. But China has a market five to six times the size of that. And so one of the things that makes Chinese entrepreneurs kind of independent is not only did the Great Firewall force them to face inward, but the marketplace inward is, is large enough uh, to, to build multiple unicorns and billions of dollars in sales without ever having to worry about the, the outside world. Uh, whereas that's not true in almost any other country, even the United States. 
As the English saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. So that really got us thinking. If China is so powerful and innovative, where is the limit? Why hasn't China been able to produce another true tech visionary like Steve Jobs? You know, the bounding box is not, at least in my belief, not going to be whether the trade war crimps China's ability to to kind of acquire. It's whether the, the culture of a state um, command and control system will allow innovation to flourish in that kind of environment. And that's the part where China's on the wrong side of history. You know, if you think about um, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you know, the Facebook people, Google guys, everything we think of as innovation in the United States, um, these entrepreneurs were dissidents. That is, they stood up to a system that existed and, and basically told them, no, they're wrong. And that they didn't care what the state or the system said, they were going to do something very different. And please don't take it as I don't think that Chinese could innovate. Of course they can. They've done a, a great job. It's just that how much can you innovate in, inside of a well-padded prison? So the idea here, I guess the claim, the claim is that uh, a certain kind of political freedom promotes technological innovation. Remember Andy Mock? And the, I guess, the related idea to that is not having a certain kind of political freedom inhibits technological innovation. I would say not at all. I think one thing is that that has made Silicon Valley work, certainly after the foundation of the government being the catalyst for starting it. But what has kept it going was being a magnet for the best and brightest technical talent all around the world. What was another catalyst was winning World War II and being able to quote-unquote liberate a lot of German technology. and. Of course, that technology that was de uh, developed in the 30s under Nazi Germany was not an open society. Look at the Soviet Union as well. So while economically they did not do well, but were very competitive technologically uh, during the Soviet era. So I think there are good examples where countries have been able to innovate without the American-style political system or political freedom. The U.S. in some ways was a country that was born on third base but thinks it hit a triple. It did something really great, but in some important ways it was just lucky. So I'm just curious, it seems like, say, no other country has produced another Bill Gates or another Steve Jobs, <laughs> you know, and I'm just curious as yeah. to why you think that is. And for example, would you say like entrepreneurs in China, say Pony Ma or Ren Zhongfei or Jack Ma, like are, are they on the same level? Would you compare to them to the same level? Yes or no? And, you know, and why? Um, I, I, I think they are on the same level. The reason the U.S. produced so many names is because the Americans are really good at telling individual stories. When you say story, what do you mm -hmm. mean by story? Well, um, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are clearly heads of very successful companies. 
um, but by personalize them as representing the success of the companies. We also ignored a lot of other important uh, contributors. So the reason I say story is the narrative about how Bill Gates become successful. Oh, he dropped out of Harvard. Um, and then he put his mind together. He developed that software companies. That's a very simple story. Mm. And the reality is much more complicated than that. Steve Jobs, the same thing. We talk about his taste, his genius, and his design, right? Um, but his idea did not only come from his own head. He was in Silicon Valley. He got idea from many other people. We don't tell that part of the story. Mm, so, I see. yeah, you know, when we talk about something, we talk about this person. It, it's easily relatable, but it's simplified. Zhen Zhenfei clearly is very important for Huawei. Jack Ma is important for Alibaba. But are they the full story? They're not, right? I, I just wanted to maybe just challenge some of the points that you've just said in a sense that Apple was based on pre-existing technology and of course, like, you know, he, he tends to be the face of the company and it wasn't that he started that all by himself. But if you look at, say, say Jack Ma even, like Jack Ma himself also is often the face of the company, right? Like, yeah. he, like, like people credit him with, like, I mean, I guess in China, his fame is also maybe, you know, similar to everyone knows who Jack Ma is, everyone knows who Steve mm-hmm. Jobs is. Mm-hmm. But even for Alibaba, the idea of like e-commerce yeah. is Come not, is also, yeah, yeah, exactly. So... I'm just, right. No, yeah. no. I'm I'm saying like all of these stories when it's centered on the individual, it became simplified. So um, it ignores a lot of other contributors. So this is why I do not think innovation is basically driven by individualism. To some degree, it is important to have individualism, but. It is not the primary driver. Every country, in, even in China, there is a certain degree of individualism. Um, United States has more, but is that the most critical driver for innovation? I'm not sure it is. What is the most critical factor to you, you think? You have to have a market. Anything you make, it has to be able to sell it, right? However, the state does play a role in terms of providing infrastructure. A state has to be willing to invest in education of its population Mm. for researchers, for technicians, and for common workers. Mm. This is why China has better development and the innovating conditions than many other developing countries because mm-hmm. China has the income growth provide the market the state investment in education provides workers generally educated workers technicians researchers and returnees from abroad right returnees will only return when their knowledge can be useful. 
and when they can get reward by investing startup companies and their knowledge can work. Okay, so maybe individualism is not a critical factor for innovation, but I'd still say that Silicon Valley seems to have a different take on failure. So Eric Ries, who is the author of the book The Lean Startup, he told us that when he was a failed entrepreneur trying to look for jobs, and in a lot of places around the country, when I was applying for jobs, uh, people saw that as a negative. They said, "Well, you know, I had failed at my previous job. I must not be very good." But nobody in Silicon Valley saw it that way. When people here were very excited, to them it was a sign that I had shown initiative, that I had tried to do something new. And the fact that I had failed was not very surprising because most startups fail. So I remember one one startup that I was interviewing with. They were thrilled. They said, "This is great." Somebody else paid for your education in failure. We don't have to pay for it. Basically, they viewed failure as experience. Exactly. So then, after talking to all of these people, what are some of the biggest takeaways for you? So when I first started researching the story, you know, for this podcast, I was fully expecting people to give me, you know, really stereotypical answers like that the West was really driven by free market forces and and the fact that individualism is a really important part of their culture, because that was my impression of Silicon Valley, right? Like I thought that it was just a bunch of really innovative people who all congregated in one place and managed to create all these amazing tech companies. So it was really surprising to see that. A lot of it actually originated from government funding, and that the state has actually an important part to play in terms of building infrastructure and laying the groundwork for companies to innovate and build upon. So similarly, in China, I started out with the impression that China was very much a top-down sort of innovation system because you know the government plans for all these things. They have state subsidies. They have. Plants. They have five-year plans. They have stuff like Made in China 2025. So yeah, I mean, it was definitely refreshing to hear that the government also only has a limited part to play. At the end of the day, it really depends on the product that you're creating, whether or not there's a market for it, whether or not people want it. Because no matter what you do, if even if the government, you know, like Professor Joe said, even if the government tried to force something to happen, but if nobody wants it, there's no way you can get that off the ground. Well said. I'm so amazing. That's great. I I really learned something today, and that's what we really want to do with the podcast: to go beyond just the stereotypes, to dig deeper, and to bring you insights into the most important trends in China technology. We have more great content coming your way. We have the China Internet Report, which is a very comprehensive look into the China tech landscape, coming up on the 10th of July, where we will unpack a lot of the latest trends, the hottest companies, and everything that you need to know about China tech. So earlier we mentioned Alibaba and Jack Ma. So as a disclaimer, Alibaba is the parent company of the South China Morning Post. This episode was produced and edited by Yang Yang. We'd like to thank Steve Blank, Eric Rees, Andy Mock, and Yu Zhou, as well as our intern King Wu. If you like this first episode of our revamped Inside China Tech podcast, tell us on Twitter. We can be found with the handles at Zensu, that's at Z E N S O O, and at Chua Kong Ho, that's C H U A K O N G H O. We also have a Facebook group called Inside China Tech. Just search ICT on Facebook, and we will pull you in. You have to search Inside China Tech, not ICT. 
We are a fortnightly podcast and new episodes drop every two weeks, where we hope to bring you insights into what matters in China's tech development. Anyways, good to be back. Very happy to be hosting this podcast again after our long hiatus. And we'll see you in two weeks. Are we done? No. Are we done? Are we still recording? I gotta run. Bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.